Are You Just Watching is supported by our dearly loved listeners. Special thanks to Craig Hardy, Tim Martin, Richard French, and Stephen Brown II for their monthly support. To help support Are You Just Watching, please go to patreon.com slash are you just watching. Show notes for this episode can be found at areyoujustwatching.com slash 70. Are You Just Watching? Episode 70, Hidden Figures, Part 1. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And today we're going to talk about a movie that you actually saw all the way back in January when it came out in the theaters. And I actually was wanting to do a podcast on it, and we decided to wait till it was on DVD to do it. I'm glad we did. Yeah, there's so much in this movie. Yeah, and uh, frankly, the uh, the featurettes and everything that come with the movie uh, are mm-hmm. very, very informative and just as entertaining. Right, right. There's so much background to this movie that when you discuss the movie, you almost have to spend as much time discussing history as you do the movie itself. So it's it's going to be a fun discussion, and that's why we've got we, before we've even recorded the first episode, we decided this is too much for one episode. We're going to do two. <laughs> We could probably get three out of it, but uh, I don't. I don't think we're going to try that. We always say that. <laughs> <laughs> now, this um, movie was based on a book by Margot Lee Shetterly. I hope I'm saying her name right. Um, and the the screenplay was based on her book, which is a nonfiction book. So it was basically resurrecting a story that has always been in the archives of NASA and. Somebody decided to write a book about it and kind of brought into the open some a really cool story that nobody knew about. Yeah, which is I think why it got its name, Hidden Figures, because it was it wasn't purposely hidden. It was just a piece of history that nobody knew about. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, I, I've mentioned before that I live in Virginia Beach, and mm-hmm. the movie is based in uh, Hampton, Virginia, which is right across the river from me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've friend of mine from church actually works at NASA Langley, and she commented that uh, this is a story they've all known, and they actually have in-house discussions and everything mm-hmm. uh, about the uh, the whole period. And when the movie was first coming out, um, she sent me some of the uh, some of the internal stuff that they've been passing around, like interviews with folks who were actually working. Uh, on or around the time of the of the Mercury Seven, and it's it's all very interesting reading. Yeah, and the the really cool thing was is that it they I don't know it just kind of put you back into a, a period of history that I think especially my generation uh, I was born you know ten years after this movie took place, uh, and so this is all you know long before I lived and. It gave me a whole new perspective on what this country was like back then, and also what it felt like to be in the middle of the space program. Because, you know, I grew up with the space program. We'd already done all of this stuff. We'd already been to the moon, and and you know, it was it was a whole new world uh, in in the space program during my childhood. 
So to kind of resurrect that feeling that the country had, you know, racing yeah. uh, Russia, ra- racing the Soviet Union uh, into space is uh, a totally different feel for me. Yeah, it's we had, um, I guess, growing up, you know, we had the, the whole space shuttles. We got to mm-hmm. see the birth of the space shuttle program. Right. And uh, and the death of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and we were, as far as we were concerned, the United States, we were the superior space race. No pun intended for this recording. <laughs> but uh, it's it, I, I like how this uh, takes it harkens back to the uh, the time when the USSR was in the lead. Frankly, mm-hmm. yes, they were. And I think maybe part of that was. Uh, and I think they even say that in the movie at one point is that they they weren't really concerned about how they used their people up, you know, in order to make it happen. Yeah. Because, um, you know, in a socialist, communistic, you know, they just, you know, you do this and you have to do it, you know, <laughs> and they, they don't care as much for their people as, as individuals. And, you know, it's just more of a task driven kind of economy. But we're not here to talk about that. What we're here to talk about is this movie. Um, what I found so fascinating was the the setting of the movie and how they pulled off resurrecting nineteen early 1960s Langley. Oh, yeah. The locations and sets were outstanding. Yes. And they were filmed all on location in the state of Georgia, which is, I guess, Hollywood East now. <laughs> uh, and they found all of these different locations scattered all about the general Atlanta area. And it's amazing how they tied it all together because, like, the the exterior of the NASA buildings were all Morehouse College um, buildings. And the insides were all a shutdown high school, which I found <laughs> pretty interesting. The uh, wind tunnel uh, was at Lockheed Martin. It's one of the one of only ten of those period wind tunnels that are still available to, for use in the United States. Yeah, it, I I find that interesting too. There's actually uh, where the wind tunnel was at Langley, Virginia. Mm-hmm. There is now a gigantic, uh, you know, much newer version, the supersonic version. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, I, I would have sworn, as a matter of fact, I thought when we were watching the movie that they were using the actual wind tunnel. <laughs> well, they were using an actual wind tunnel, just not the one at Langley. Not the one I thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and it, was, it was amazing that they were able to find one they could film in because, I mean, they're probably not that easy to get into. And, and that Lockheed Martin was willing to, to loan theirs for filming was great. Yeah, it's those. I gotta say, those wind tunnel scenes blew me away. <laughs> <laughs> Though I did see um, some of the factual stuff I was reading on um, IMDb's website uh, under their trivia section uh, that they actually had the landers uh, turn the wrong way in the wind tunnel. <laughs> um, I missed that. Yeah, because because they have the uh, the the bottom of the bell would have been the entry point, so that the um, they were. They were putting the wind on a, on the wrong side. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah they they had they they had some factual errors in the movie, but only people who knew what they were looking for would probably see them. Sacrifices for creativity. Yeah, exactly. 
um, the uh, the hangar where they had the uh, the astronauts come in and do all their training was at Clay National Guard. They said they were the only hangar in the state of Georgia that was big enough to stand in for <laughs> that. Uh, and it was a period hangar too. It, it fit the the correct period. And yeah, it's it everything looked authentic to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and not that I lived at that time. But, yeah. You know. <laughs> um, another interesting trivia part that I pulled from IMDb is is that the cars that they used, most of them were somewhat close to the correct era, but many of them were after sixty two. So they were like sixty three and sixty four <laughs> and sixty five yeah. model cars in there, and they and that if you were paying close attention, you would see the same cars in multiple scenes. And in uh, the parking lots where she's running across the parking lot, there's one car that never moves. And so <laughs> it's in the same parking spot in every scene. Um, so, you know, people pay attention to these little details. But It's assigned parking, that's yeah. all. That he parks yeah. in the same spot every day. They said it was really obvious that they, they shot all of the, the car scenes all, on, like, all at the same time. So mm-hmm. that, you know, because they borrowed the cars from from his you know historical car owners and that kind yeah. of thing and and uh, and they said that some of the cars had been obviously restored in a in a more pristine they were all pristine and beautiful there weren't any like run down junk heaps they were all right. cuz they were all um maintained historical cars and they and some of them had like the wrong hubcaps and the wrong you know whatever on them because, wow yeah that, I mean, that's a level of detail <laughs> i I know the prop guys have to consider that, but uh, when you're borrowing someone else's car for a movie shoot, you can't like make it authentic, you know. <laughs> not without spending money. Yep. So I I just thought that was there was some interest. I read through the entire trivia section; it was really uh, quite educational. <laughs> but yeah, that was there's just a lot of fun stuff about the movie like that, and uh, I think that Georgia has really. Uh, placed itself in a place where they can take on a lot of these movies because you know like starting with like driving driving miss daisy Mm. uh, they have a lot of places in georgia that has maintained their history and you know built old buildings and old residential streets and you know places that just haven't changed and so it makes filming these kind of movies a lot easier and i'm a georgia girl at heart so (laughs) oh that's right you're you're from that area aren't you I, uh, I, my family is from that area. I've lived there. Um, my, uh, my dad's family are all in Georgia. So. That's like when I say my family's from Pittsburgh, it's my dad's family that's Pittsburgh. I've never <laughs> actually lived there. <laughs> I wasn't born there, but I did, uh, I did live there quite a few years. So I, I, I do love Georgia. It's a beautiful state. The music for this movie was composed by Hans Zimmer. Um, he's, uh, Uh, One of my favorite composers, and we'll play just a little bit of the music here for you to listen to. In addition to that wonderful music, there were a sprinkling of original songs throughout the movie that were composed and performed by Farrell Williams. And 
I thought that added so much to the movie. Yeah. It's it just when you're watching the movie, it just fits so well. Yeah. Um, it's seamless. Yeah. It almost makes you feel like you're back in that period of time. He did a terrific job. And let's play one of our favorite songs here. Not the whole song. We'll just play a little bit of it. Yeah, so those are all of just kind of like the setup for the movie. And I, I think you can tell kind of the, as from the way that we're approaching this that we both really like this movie. Um, but you wanted to say something about what you were your expectations. Yeah, actually, um, when we first discussed doing, doing this the movie, movie, and this mm-hmm. was before it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when we uh, saw it upcoming and, and uh, knew it was going to come out, I didn't want to see it. I really have a problem with so many of these um, productions that that come out of Hollywood, and I I feel like they have this uh, self congratulatory, more tolerant than thou posturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I understand that. Uh, at least a portion, probably a significant portion of that is just my own perception. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, going into this, I was expecting another one of those, look at how tolerant uh, how tolerant we are and how intolerant you are. Right. And I am very pleased to report that uh, Hidden Figures was absolutely 100% not the case. Right. Um, right. And, and I... Also was hesitant with uh, with hidden figures because I am a white Anglo-Saxon <laughs> middle-aged male, and this is about black women. <laughs> uh, and frankly, I can get in trouble just discussing racial issues, <laughs> just because of who you are. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. <laughs> I, I was worried that my frame of reference might be a bit off. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that this movie was a testament to a period of history um, where I think that there were parts of the United States that was working its way out of the bottom of a pit. Yeah. And I think that there were always people like that in this country. And and I think that that this movie is a testimony to um, how individuals can dig themselves out of a, a institutional hole, oh, yeah. basically. And I, I love the way that the the women in this movie do it, too. And we'll talk a little bit about that yeah. <laughs> later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first, I decided um, that we could, you know, maybe tie this in historically just a little bit, you know, to, to kind of mm-hmm. introduce some of uh, what's going on in this movie from a historical standpoint before we dig into the actual story of the movie. Because what I found when I was researching for this podcast is that all a lot of the events we see in the movie did happen. They just didn't necessarily happen in the period of time or in the order that we see them happen in the movie. Yeah. So they they were true stories, but 
they kind of condensed probably about 10 years worth of history into about a year. Yeah, the the period of the movie was uh was 18 months, wasn't it? Yeah. Because it, yeah. it started in 61 and ended with um uh John Glenn's, Glenn's friendships. Yeah, Glenn's friendship 7 mission. So in 62. Yeah. But it it was it felt even though we know from from doing the research that it, mm-hmm. you know it started in '58. It felt very natural in the movie. I, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think without the research, I don't think I would have known. Right. I don't think I would have noticed. Right, and and the only reason why I wanted to kind of put things into place historically was that when you realize the Civil Rights Act wasn't passed until '64, all of these events happened within a ten-year, within a ten-year period before that. So this this is in segregated America. This is where um, racism, you know, existed in a way that, frankly, we can't comprehend today. Um, those of us born after 1964 probably have really no clue, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So um, so here's just a few of the things that I found in my research uh, in the NACA, which was the uh, the precursor of NASA. Onaka, I guess, is what you would call it. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, one thing I read said that they did not pronounce it out. Uh, oh, really? When it was NACA, it was always said the NACA. Yeah. Uh, they didn't start uh, – and NASA was the same way for the first couple of years. <laughs> and then they started pronounce. then they started just saying it as a word, yeah, NASA. because it was much easier. <laughs> yeah. It's always easier to say it as a word. Well, the, it really the, is. N-A-S-A, yeah. N-A-S-A, N-A-S-A, N-A-S-A. Oh, yeah, that would become a mouthful after a while. Uh, but what I found out was is from its inception, the NACA was uh, a very progressive organization to work for. They were one of the first organizations in America to have a female engineer. Mm-hmm. And this was way back before the World Wars. I mean, it. it, it I don't remember exactly from my research. I didn't type it into our notes, but they had... I think it was like 1918 or something like that when they hired their first female engineer. So hmm. they were extremely progressive for that period of time. And uh, when the Mary Jackson story that we see in the movie where she att- uh, attempts to get the education she needs to be hired as an engineer, um, she was actually promoted to engineer in 1958. Right. And she in the movie, it shows her just getting starting to get the education necessary in in 62 but she was actually hired as an engineer in 1958 and she was nasa's first black female engineer yeah the they this comes back to that compression of time that you were Mm -hmm. mentioning earlier they they sort of had to uh to take the three uh separate stories and put them all together and it it made a great it made a great presentation oh yeah yeah and and like I said, I'm only doing this to kind of give people a feeling for the actual history behind this movie. Uh, I found it really fascinating to find out that all of this happened in the 50s, really. not It didn't wait until, you know, the early 60s or ni- 1964. This all happened in the 50s. And to me, that's a real testament to um, the fact that not only could women progress this far, but black women could progress this far yeah. in the middle of Jim Crow. It's just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Katherine Johnson uh, began working for the Flight Research Division, which is what they call um, the Space Task Group in mm-hmm. the movie. 
Um, she started working for them in 1953, so it was almost 10 years prior to the the period in the movie. She was working there when NACA became NASA, and she had already co-authored her first report uh, by 1960, which is one of the kind of the underlying stories that's going on uh, in Hidden Figures is her attempt to get her name credited uh, for some of the math that she was doing. And they kept saying, computers don't author papers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, she actually had had been credited with as an author uh, by 1960, and uh, the West Computing Office was actually abolished in 1958 uh, when the NACA became NASA, and their computing employees after that were completely non-segregated. They were uh, completely uh, integrated racially and gender by gender, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's uh, they really were. Uh- ahead of their time mm-hmm. and uh it, they it, they were a good demonstration of how focusing on the mission uh and working towards a common goal um, right you know can overcome all of the differences that we have yeah i mean it's, it's amazing another piece of trivia that historical trivia that i thought was really interesting was that john glid did ask for catherine to verify his, the c- computer's calculations but unfortunately, the movie shows it happening while he's heading to the launch site. <laughs> it actually happened uh, several days before launch, and it took her a day and a half to verify the numbers. To verify the numbers that the IBM spit out in probably an hour. <laughs> yeah, maybe an hour. It might have been a little longer. Those computers were really slow. Yeah. Back then. <laughs> feeding, feeding the cards alone probably took an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, her result did match the computers, and that they said that was actually the first time that people actually had confidence in the computers because her her calculations matched the computers all the way to the decimal, yeah, to the se- several decimal points. So they, that was when they determined the software for the computer work. They actually verified the computer against a a, a human ca- computer. So she put herself out of a job, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, this thing can do everything I can. Why, thanks. (laughs) You're fired. They can't come up with the original math because computers will only spit out what you put in. And math is always dependable. Right. Well, if you put bad numbers in, you get bad numbers out. (laughs) What was it? Gigo? Garbage in, garbage out? Garbage out, yeah. (laughs) Um, You don't have the – like they show in the movie um, the the part where uh, she comes up with that old-style math to solve a new problem – and it's like a computer can't do that. It has to – it can't think outside of the box you, you put yeah. it in. Especially and, back then. I mean this is mm-hmm. long before the idea of, uh, of logic that could, <laughs> that could even resemble human intelligence. Right. Right. So yeah, I think that she didn't necessarily put her out of, herself out of a job. She just wasn't a computer anymore. She became yeah. a mathematician. You know? and, and stayed one for many, many, many moons. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's uh you know I I wanted to to lead into the next uh the next section just like they had to uh compress and combine so many different events. They they actually did the same thing with a number of the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh in the movie it, they were composites of uh of several different people because you know in real life there were thousands of of people <laughs> involved yeah. in the the Mercury project. And they probably burned their employees out pretty fast too, with the kind of deadlines that they had. Yeah, and no the big kidding. Big turnover. Yeah, 
uh, speaking as somebody who's on a uh, relatively big product project right now, I could say I could see that burnout happening. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> can I? <laughs> but three of the main characters and uh, three of the most interesting characters uh, to learn that they were composites. Um, Al Harrison, um, the head of the space task group, played by Kevin Costner in the movie. Mm-hmm. was based on one guy Robert C Gilruth but uh you know they they put in elements of all the other managers all the other management mm-hmm. uh of the of NASA mm-hmm. and uh Jim Parsons character Paul Stafford was uh, a composite of uh the engineers that Catherine worked with in the space task group. I think um, Vivian Mitchell was one of my favorite characters. Of course, I've always liked Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, and, me too. Yeah, she's she is one of my favorite actresses. And the weird thing about it is that when I first saw her in the movie, I, it didn't even strike me that that was Kirsten Dunst until I got to the end and was watching. Oh, that's why I recognized her. She she does such a good job of, of being the character. Yeah. I don't mean this in a bad way, but... I was surprised by how mature she looks in this movie. Because <laughs> you're used to seeing her as playing a much younger person. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. my first memory of Kristen Dunst's um, interview with a vampire. <laughs> I always think <laughs> of she Spider-Man. Play, she was a 12-year-old <laughs> playing a 6-year-old in that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... It, it, I know she, she's younger than us, right? Or maybe about the same age. Yeah. Um, but in in this film, she maybe a little younger. She yeah. carried herself like a clearly mature woman. She really impresses me with her uh, with mm-hmm. her acting air. Uh, mm-hmm. She really wears it very well. Yeah, yeah, and and her character Vivian Mitchell in this movie is a. a very much a composite because she's, yeah. there is actually no person like that uh, that they could historically point to. Uh, she she's basically reflects the views and attitudes of all of the white women that worked in in managerial roles. Mm-hmm. Um, she's and, not she's not an actual historical person. Yeah, I think I think her character was actually uh, the most necessary of the of the three composite characters that we pulled out. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it really does inform her whole attitude, um, really does inform the viewer about the more casual aspects of the uh, of how racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it really because, and and she's not mean about it either. No, no, she isn't. She just it, it, and I and I like you said. I think she was necessary because she comprises the way people interacted back then. It mm-hmm. was just. It was the way they were raised to think, and and she plus the uh, Harrison's assistant, the the woman that what was Harrison's assistant in in the task force. I oh, think yeah. both of them, both of them had a a, a really strong uh, role in in showing that casual racism. That yeah, just it it just was matter of fact. They didn't even think about it, you know. And it, they demonstrated growth through the movie too, which I thought yes. was a, a a wonderful touch. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really helped to uh, it really helped to speak to the the positive arc of this movie. Yeah, and and that's kind of what I want to deal with the rest of this uh, episode is to talk about you know the positive arc of this movie because there it's a triumphal movie in Absolutely. my thoughts. Yeah, it, it, there's so much about this that 
you know, if you, if you want to be negative about it, you can go into talking about the dark era of the Jim Crow and, and how terrible it was for black people and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the back of the bus mentality and the whites only and the, uh, you know, segregation and all of that's in the movie. And it was terrible. Don't get me wrong. But I think the point of this movie and what I really want to dwell on on this movie is the triumphs over all of that, because that's what this movie is about. And it it excites me to see it. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the the creative team behind this. They clearly wanted to emphasize emphasize the uh, positives that uh, of this story. And they did they did a really good job. Yeah. And uh, this for this reason, primarily, um you know, I was completely wrong about what to expect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it starts off right away. When you first watch the movie, uh, you get the, the racist cop. And, <laughs> I, you, you know, that you see the, the women just get so scared because he's, he's driving up on them. And, you know, they're broke down the side of the road and, you know, they make comments about having, you know, having a broken down car is not a crime. You know, they just immediately expect to be targeted by this cop. Yeah. And and you feel their you feel their tension, their fear. Yeah. Yeah. And their fear there. And and he is that way to some extent until they show their IDs. Their NASA IDs. <laughs> Their NASA IDs, which completely he, – he's and then he starts talking about the Russians. Oh, and, yeah. I love how he looks up into the sky and you're like, what is he doing? <laughs> and then he says, they're up there right now, probably looking down on us. <laughs> yeah. And and that was, to me, um, an indication of how, as we, we mentioned earlier from a historical standpoint, is that we were losing – the race to space and the Russian, and there was this great fear of the Russians coming mm. out of world war two and, and, you know, the, the whole Soviet uh, communism and all of that stuff. And I mean, I only vaguely remember what that was like. And from the late seventies and early eighties, when we would do our, our, um, you know, bomb drills, you know, oh, yeah. you'd go hide under your desk. And, and I only vaguely remember that, but it was a real concern back in this era. People were scared to death of the Russians. When I joined the army in the in 1990, mm-hmm. we were still training for the uh, the Soviet threat, and that feeling that we had back in uh, back in elementary school when when we did the duck and cover drills, mm-hmm. which I think I did my last one probably in third grade. So, what would that be? 82, 83. Mm. No, wait. Would have been much earlier than that. Anyway, yeah. um, I only I don't, vaguely I don't know remember. how old I am. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's it, one of in the commentary. One of the guys mentioned that uh, nobody believed when Russia said they were going to do it. Nobody believed them. Mm-hmm. They pointed out that you guys just got trounced by Germany ten years ago. You're not going to put anything into space. <laughs> Guess what? They did. Yeah, they they, they made it a national effort. And I think that um, what we see um, on on the U.S. side of things in this movie is that it was a national effort back. There was a whole it, – it bred nationalism. And you asked me when we were putting together the outline why I chose the word nationalism. And I really feel like it wasn't patriotism there. It was nationalism because it was a common goal and a common enemy. And mm-hmm. patriotism is more of a – I don't know, I guess a love of country. Yeah. And 
and this is this wasn't necessarily a love of country. This was a fear of an enemy. Yeah, nationalism does, uh, especially in more recent years, does sort of carry a uh, more negative connotation. Um, mm-hmm. People tie it to imperialism and and all of that. Uh, but really, uh, in the definitions of nationalism uh, versus patriotism, mm-hmm. the defining characteristic is that nationalism is uh, is held in competition to. Uh, another nation so it really does apply in this case where it you know the united states was in clear competition with the soviet union Mm -hmm. and uh but when you put nationalism in there it it got me to thinking it was the was the state trooper who came up to the the women broken down on the side of the road was he a patriot or was he a nationalist and i he i believe he was both yeah well, I but, don't think uh, one. But the scene one is focused on his na- nationalism. nationalism, right? Yeah, um, and and I felt like that was really what was tying people together, and was mm-hmm. a national effort, because th- this was. And I mean, when they when you see the the whole friendship seven and launch, and everybody's like pulled over to the side of the road, you know, looking up in the sky, and and th- this was this was something that we didn't do. I think mean, I think. You know, with the space shuttle missions and space had become so routine to us that <laughs> we didn't realize, you know, maybe in, until, the, you know, the shuttle disasters, it, it just never really impressed on us the danger and the, um, you know, what they were doing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but that's what it was back then. And it was it was this big national push um, yeah. to, to beat the Russians to space. And, the, and, and that was where they, they come up with this common cause with this very racist cop that ends yeah. up taking them all the way to work with his sirens. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the, I, I, I'm glad they started with that scene. Cause it just, it, it started with humor. It was like, you were, you were getting ready for all this racial tension and then it turned it into this really humorous moment that, that, yeah, I think that's an excellent observation. They, they really, they really were, uh, setting you up for the the heaviness mm-hmm. and then bam hit you with the <laughs> hit you with the humor yeah rubber chicken flies out of the screen hits you in the face yeah <laughs> yeah um great way to start the movie um one of the other things i wanted to talk about was one of the things that really popped out to me in the movie as a triumph was dorothy vaughn her whole mm. character was to me absolutely amazing and when i when i saw the movie I actually uh saw it in the theater when it was at the cheap seats and I, I had the girl that was sit, that went to see the movie with me. She had seen it before and she wanted to see it again with me. And, and it was my first time. And so when, when she first saw the IBM, you know, where they were setting it up, um, I was like, I was like, she, she better do something about that. And, and she says, just wait, just wait. And I was just really impressed to see how she saw she, this computer is going to replace me. So yeah. I'm going to get ahead of the, the ball. I'm going to figure out how to program that sucker. And this and this was actually uh, a very reflective of what happened in, in real life with mm-hmm. uh, Miss Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it, it uh, we always try to tie in scripture. And, and uh, this actually got me thinking about. Um, not only about um, the importance of working for God mm-hmm. and being a steward of your talents, in this case, speaking uh, 
mentally as as well as uh, financially. Um, but uh, it it really showed her foresight, and it it got me thinking of uh, of a couple different proverbs. Uh, proverbs nineteen two, uh, desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this case, Dorothy, uh, she she desires to not only con- continue to stay relevant, but to keep her computers relevant Mm -hmm. yes so her entire team and i loved that about her Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but but she didn't do it she didn't rush off into it i mean she she saw a need and she took some very lengthy and uh intricate steps to fill it including stealing a book from the library (laughs) well yeah (laughs) (laughs) well she had to as she said she's a taxpayer she paid for that book (laughs) Uh, there was uh, uh, one other one. The plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to pov- uh, poverty. Uh, Proverbs twenty one five. Same. It's the same. Uh, same general feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dorothy really, uh, uh, her actions here really exemplified uh, those proverbs for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that I I I loved Catherine's story, but. Dorothy's story really was prominent to me in, in, in that fact that she was so open to learning new skills. She wasn't allowing herself to get stuck in a rut. And she wasn't a young woman either. She was the oldest of the three. And she didn't she didn't let moss grow under her feet. You know what I mean? She was just like <laughs> she was ready to um to do whatever was necessary to make sure she kept her job. And yeah. and she didn't she didn't do it for any other reason than, you know, to apply herself and to be a good employee. And I just, I really loved that about her, that she was so forethinking. None of the, the white computers thought about that. And she was already ready to program. In fact, in the movie, they show her getting the IBM working when the people who installed it couldn't figure <laughs> it out, which I don't know how true that was. But to me, I, I think that was, you know, her dedication to, to bettering herself and and fitting in wherever it was necessary was was just an amazing triumph in this movie. Yeah, yeah, very very well portrayed and and uh, very heartwarming. Yes, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, and this is um, this is three separate characters I saw this in was um, how the casual racism. We kind of talked about that a little bit, having to do with Vivian's character, um, how the casual racism that was a product of the culture and the education of that era. I mean, white people were raised to be racist back then. Mm -hmm. And, but it comes face to face with this whole United effort that, you know, that, that pulls every, pulls the team together, you know? And, um, one of those, and of course Vivian was a, was a completely fictionalized character, but the scene at the end where she passes on Dorothy's promotion to her and then calls her Mrs. Vaughn instead of Dorothy. And yeah. that that was and – and I'm wondering how many of our generation or the generations that come after us completely miss the significance of that. Yeah. It's – you know, it's a couple of times I was uh, – I, I wondered about that too. And I was hearkening back to the days where, uh, you know, the kids always said sir or ma'am or mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Martin, Mrs. Martin. Uh, it that really seems to have gone to have fallen by the by the right. side of the road recently, right? Right. But the, 
in this instance, it was that before that, Dorothy was always referring to Vivian respectfully, but Vivian was never referring back exactly. to Dorothy respectfully. And that was that, like my great grandmother was casually racist because she was raised, I mean, she was, you know, really old. <laughs> so she, 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 <laughs> uh, she, she came from that era where you, you still treated black people like servants and, and mm-hmm. that was all they were, you know? And one of the things that had always bugged me about her was, in her later years, she had this couple that came and helped her take care of her house. And they were an elderly couple, too. They were probably in their maybe late 60s. And she called them boy and girl. And it was, huh. to me, it was just so disrespectful because they were black. And in her mind, you know, that boy that takes care of the, the property and that girl that cleans the house. And it was just so racist to me. And but that was the kind of casual racism that we were seeing here with, I mean, Vivian wasn't quite that rude, mm-hmm. but, but that was the casual racism that was portrayed in her character that comes to a fruition of this is this person that I've been interacting with is a woman deserved of respect. And I'm going to treat her with that respect. And, and that was the growth of the character that we talked about earlier. She, she has that, significant growth but it's so subtle that yeah. i don't know how many people really realize that change the way she changed the way she addressed dorothy why that was so significant the other thing that i thought was was really cool uh, from this whole you know the product of ra- the racism meeting the united effort was um harrison in the way that he um urges his team to uh to accept catherine as an integral part of their effort and that's kind of a gradual thing, too, because I think the racism that was going on, he was completely oblivious to it until it affected his effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, there's this scene um, where Catherine is uh, forced to drink out of different uh, source of coffee. Mm-hmm. Than, Which that uh, doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. What is getting <laughs> pouring coffee into a mug? How does how is she tainting it? <laughs> it makes the same amount of sense as a water fountain I know. and the bathroom. <laughs> None of it makes sense. But uh when it in the movie it comes to uh to Al Harrison's uh attention that this type of discrimination is is happening. Mm-hmm. I expected when I first on my first viewing, I expected him to uh you know to to lecture lecture the team on on pulling together and everything but he just he pulled off the sign folded it shook his head and walked away (laughs) and like many other characters in the movie it really does speak to just how present the the racism and discrimination was for these for these people it it wasn't until the the segregation in the movie uh, impacted his team's ability to do its mission to perform its mission right that he, he did, actually took yeah did something about violent it. action yeah <laughs> that yeah. poor sign man i'll tell you what yeah. he he wailed on it <laughs> yeah that and and i think that that was you know kind of like that whole let's pull together and maybe even Maybe they were kind of hearkening back to the fact that they had desegregated all of that uh, part of NASA pretty early on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, we're 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 a team here. It doesn't matter what quote unquote race you are. 
or what gender you are, we all have a integral role to play. And so, you know, we just have to not look at each other and (laughs) worry about what each other is. We just have to, um, to, you know, do our job and do our job with excellence because that's, what's going to get us into space. And that was, that was one of my, obviously I think a lot of people like that, that scene where, where he, uh, takes a, he's like, we all pee the same color. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good line. I like that one too. Uh, you know, another character where, um, they just accept, the racism was the uh, the judge mm-hmm. that Mary confronts to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mary's trying to get her, get permission to go to an all-white school. Yeah. I love the way she uses his ego against him. Yeah. She, she, she thoroughly researched the judge she was going before. Did she ever? And she already had her argument set up and she basically used his own ego against him and that, and it worked. I mean, she knew the right argument, and she used the right argument, and it worked. And that it just, that was lovely. Yeah, it's I I liked uh, for me the judge spoke even more to me about uh, just the way he portrayed the uh, the segregation as this is the way it is. There ain't nothing I can do to fix it. Yeah. Um, he just said, I mean, his whole attitude his old why would you way he carried want himself. to go to the school you know yeah. that kind of yeah 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 and sad. and that yeah it, it was sad and what i thought was interesting um was at that period of time segregation uh, while there wasn't a general federal law against segregation it was it wasn't in every state so there were some states that had already desegregated before the civil rights act it just happened to be that virginia wasn't one of them and it Imagine was, that. yeah, um, probably a lot of the Southern states were, were fighting with it, but yeah, it, it was just one of those states where, you know, it had to happen on a state by state basis. And this was, happened to be one of the states where it was still an issue. Yeah. And, you know, despite, uh, despite this clearly, uh, still rampant, uh, segregation and racism, and this is long after. This is uh, what seven years after Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, the way it's still portrayed, the women of Hidden Figures could reasonably have been expected to be angry, right? And and to uh, like like you said, play the victim card to mm-hmm. to get ahead, right? But they don't. No, they don't, and. Th- I think that this is maybe one of the biggest lessons of Hidden Figures is that they met the persecution that held them down. I mean, really held them down. They were facing real discrimination in the 60s and the 50s. And through their own ability, because they were all highly skilled, uh, natural natural mathematicians – highly skilled, highly determined, and they just persevered. They just pushed through. And it's beautiful the way they, they weren't violent, even though uh, Mary's husband was actually uh, one of the protesters. And and he kind of tended toward that, you know, we got to take our freedom, you know, very violent person. And she even met him with, you know, there's, there's another way. I mean, we can do this a different way. Uh, That little, that little, um, subplot of the relationship between Mary and Levi. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, 
it was such a small part, but I really was touched by uh, how Levi and Mary connected at the end. Uh, and I just have to say, I love Aldous Hodge. He's like, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I think he's a great. I great have trouble. Actor. I have trouble not seeing um, leverage. Leverage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As soon as I saw him, I'm like leverage. But he he really is a good actor. Yeah. I mean, so many good actors in this film. Yes. Um, yes. Who was? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher his name. Uh, Meher Shala Ali. Uh, one of my all-time favorite actors. And it's, you know, I always see him and go, oh, I love this guy. But I, I don't know anything about him. <laughs> it, I want to say he was in Crossing Jordan or or one of those and really made an impression on me at that point. Yeah. But uh, it, back to back to how the women uh, handled themselves. It uh, It really got me thinking about how we are called to handle ourselves in situations like that. And how many of us, myself, uh, chief <laughs> among them fail. Yes. It's so easy uh, to answer antagonism with, you know, heated antagonism. And it just, yeah. it, it keeps like pushing it up. And uh, one of the things I thought about, I'll let you get to your scripture here in a minute, but one of the things I keep thinking about with this is, is Ben Carson. He's, one of my favorite mm. political figures um, of the last, you know, five, six years, or I don't even remember how long he's been in the public eye. Um, but I read his book and it, it reminded me, you know, when we were talking about how these women dealt with, um, you know, real true racism, um, it reminded me of, you know, Ben's story about when he became a surgeon and, you know, he would be in the hospital and people would just assume he was an orderly because he was mm. in, in, in scrubs and, and a black man. And they just yeah. never expected a, a, a black man to be a, a skilled surgeon, you know, and it's just expectations. And he didn't blame people for making those expectations. He would just very gently and kindly, no, I'm the surgeon. We'll go call an orderly yeah. <laughs> for you. Uh, that That's kind of, you know, the what we see with these women, you know, they just did what they, they could do to shunt that that prejudice away from them and they just kept doing their job. Yeah. I realize that uh that the beatitudes in Matthew Matthew 5 are among the uh the most misrepresented portions <laughs> of scripture. Mhm. Mm um but it's I think it the characters in this movie um and, and for that matter Ben Carson's attitudes and mm -hmm. uh that you just laid out, they really do speak to uh, to a, a fair number of the Beatitudes. And I'm going to, uh, if you'll excuse the cherry picking here, I'm, I'm going to read just a, a, a few of the selected ones. Uh, uh, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I love that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. And uh, ten, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, the three women of hidden figures, uh, some to greater extent than others, really seem to uh, be an on-screen personification of of some of these uh, these mm. attitudes, and I really appreciated that. Yeah. It, and I felt like their lifelong victory, not just as you see it in the movie, but as 
you know it to be from uh, right. real life. Mm-hmm. I feel like their victory was more valuable because of how they did this. Mm-hmm. I, f- I felt like it was a uh, more precious victory. And the fact that their story has gone untold for so long. I, when I was on the NASA website, the NASA we're, we'll put it in the show notes, but NASA has an entire section uh, based on this movie where you can get some of the history behind uh, the characters and everything. Um, when I was looking through um, what they were saying about them, one of the questions in their FAQ was, you know, why was this story hidden for so long? <laughs> and And they were like, it wasn't hidden. We've always known about it. It was just not you know, popularized. It wasn't put out there where other people could know about it. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't intentionally locked away so nobody would know. It was just, <laughs> you know. It was a cover-up. It was a cover-up, yeah. Um, it, it just was something that was uh, that people didn't maybe realize it was a significant story, and so they didn't ever mm-hmm. talk about it. And it's just one of those beautiful pieces out of American history that, it's wonderful to have exposed so that we can enjoy it. One of the things that I thought was extremely valuable about this, it kind of changed my perspective a little bit. Recently, after seeing the movie, I was in a public restroom and a, a black woman came out and we were washing our hands at the same time. And, and it just because I had recently watched the movie, I was thinking, you know, we just don't think about that anymore in our culture. We, you know, sharing public restrooms with people of various shades of brown doesn't bother us anymore or sharing a poll. I mean, it's just not something we think about. And at the same time, we have all these people telling us that institutionalized racism is just rampant in our culture. It's like, point it out to me because (laughs) I, I know that there, I know that there are individuals and possibly even companies and, and groups that have that display racist tendencies. I'm not saying racism doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that it was in the 50s and the 60s and, you know, prior to the 50s and 60s, um, going all the way back to slavery here in the United States, we have come so far. Oh, yeah. It's people who talk about racism today being uh, nearly as bad as, as it was in, uh, prior to the mid-1960s. I I think they are significantly underselling <laughs> <laughs> the uh the severity of the racism that that was present mm-hmm. um before the likes of of dr king and and serious pushes on on civil rights and most of it was was peaceful i mean we didn't need like you know the the riots that occur today um over what i consider and mostly a, a supposed racism i and i i know i have to to quantify qualify that because you know as a white person if i say you know white white privilege doesn't exist in all of this um i'm going to get attacked <laughs> but um yeah. but when you put it in the perspective of this movie you know th- these people peacefully standing up for themselves and getting somewhere despite real discrimination mm-hmm. a, a real glass ceiling that they were smacking against with every step they took you know yeah it, this is a massive triumph. The world we live in today, you you can get into schools if you have the grades and and the you know you can get into schools. You, you you're not told that you cannot enter a school because you're black. Yeah. you might get told it's, you can't enter a school because you're white. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's always going. I mean, we are always going to encounter people. We're always going to uh, 
have people who express their sinfulness in this way. And right. uh, there's there's nothing that we as humans can do about that. Uh, we besides... can only be our be our best selves, you know. Exactly. Um, but I, I just challenge people if if you're really concerned about institutionalized racism in our nation today. Really think about it when you're walking down the street or when you enter a restaurant or you get in public transportation, uh, a, a bus or a uh, commuter train, or you go into a public restroom or a library or a bank or a restaurant. And is there a black only section? Are black hmm. people getting a different kind of service than white people? Um, are they forced to use a different restroom? Are they forced to drink out of a different water fountain? Are they uh, not allowed to borrow certain books out of the library? You know, is there a section of the library they're not allowed in? All of these things were what it was really like in segregated Virginia. And we we have no clue. I mean, it's like it's we we just our, our common thought these days is that we're we're truly all together in our culture. Now we're we're truly mixed. And if there's any racism going on, it's on the part of individuals, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it. I think it. It probably is. It's. I think what a lot of people um, perceive as uh, not perceive as racism, but how racism manifests more today uh, is through the decades long effects that racism that the racism of the 50s, 60s, uh, 40s, 50s, and 50s, 60s mm-hmm. continue to have. I mean, the racism of the 20th century had a very nearly permanently detrimental effect on the economics of black American families. I can see that to some extent, but it shouldn't be affecting... Uh, one of my favorite political speakers now is Ben Shapiro, and he talks mm. about this effect at at length. And one of the things that he points out is, is that um, black people can get the same loans. So you don't inherit your credit from your, your parents, you have your own credit. So your own ability to manage money is what is being um, used against you when you apply for credit. So the, the ability to get loans, the ability to get education, all of that stuff hinges on your own ability and your own and and granted, if your parents don't teach you how to manage money, you're going to be poor. Yeah. But that is not a black issue because there are a lot of white poor people that are in the exact same position because their parents don't teach them how to manage money yeah. properly. And that's not a position that is wholly pushed on black people. It's colorblind, really. Um, it's It's based on, you know, the way you manage money and the way you teach your kids to manage money. But one of the things I really like about one of, about what Ben Shapiro often says when people challenge him on the topic of institutionalized racism today is he says, show me the racism. I cannot fight ghosts. You know, if you point out the exact law or the exact organization or the individual or whatever that's doing something racist, I will stand with you against that. But I cannot fight ghosts. I can't, it has to be a real thing that I can do something about. Mm. And I really like that because it's like uh, you can't fight this amorphous racism. You can only fight something that's real, that's tangible, that has a solution or that you can make a solution for. If it's if it's just generalized racism, um, what can we do about that? 
you know, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about this movie is, is that people weren't just complaining, they were doing something. And that's why I love Dorothy Vaughn's character so much is because she didn't sit back and go, oh, I'm going to get replaced by a computer. It's which that's certainly the impression that we got from the uh, from Vivian and and her group was that they they had just accepted that they were going to. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if we have the quote in in the list, but uh, there's actually a a quote about uh, all jobs are temporary. But maybe we'll get to that on the next episode. Yeah, I think we're we're at a good stopping place. So please tune in because on our next episode, we're going to um, dive into actual quotes, uh, which is the fa- our favorite part of doing DVDs is we can actually hmm. mine the quotes out instead of relying on our uh, handwriting. We get the audio in and we have the quotes exactly and we can put time hacks on it and it's, everything's beautiful. <laughs> so don't miss our next episode. Uh, and uh, and we're going to uh, be able to continue this discussion because there's so much more here to talk about. We've yeah. we've touched on some of the things that we're going to talk about in the next episode, but uh, we're going to get we're going to really dive in. So uh, definitely check out the next episode. Now for this episode, you can find the show notes at areyoujustwatching.com/slash seventy. And we would love for you to comment and and give us any feedback. Now, we're going to go ahead and record the second episode now, so you're not going to be able to to get in on that. But we do uh, want to know what you thought of the movie and definitely comment there. You can leave us a voicemail at 903-231-2221. You can email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. Join our Facebook discussion group. uh, You can look for it as Are You Just Watching uh, group on Facebook, or you can go to our website. show notes and we'll have a link there yep you can subscribe rate and review us in itunes you can follow me on at twitter at e franklin and you can follow me at renchepple r-e-n-c-h-e-p-l-e and thank you so much for listening this is this is a fun thing that we do and i know that there are a lot of other christian movie review podcasts that you can listen to and sure i mean we only bring out one episode a month so you have plenty of time to listen to them and listen to us too (laughs) absolutely (laughs) share us uh, make sure that you share our posts on facebook kind of spread it around spread the love (laughs) (laughs) so that other people can find out about us and listen to us as well thank you so much for listening i'm e franklin i'm tim martin Don't Just Watch. Are You Just Watching is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx. Noodle.mx.